Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramer. I'm people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate, teach, and put it in context. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Now, some of you may have been discouraged. Discouraged? <laughs> When Fed Chief Jay Powell told the Senate that the risks to the economy are to the downside earlier today. But I was ebullient. The fact that Powell knows things are slowing down, well, that may be the best thing this market has going for it. It's one reason why we rallied from a very ugly opening. And we're briefly in the black before a hiccup at the close. Dow and ultimately closing down 34 points. S&P declining 0.08%. And the Nasdaq? The Nasdaq dropped 0.07%. Remember, in this business, we care about the future a lot more than the past, or certainly even the present. And when the chairman of the Federal Reserve sounds cautious about the future, it means he won't be raising interest rates anytime soon. That's great news, people. It's great. We never want to fight the Fed. And now we won't have to. How do I know this? We'll listen to this stuff. You'll know. Over the past few months, we have seen some cross-currents and conflicting signals. Financial markets have become more volatile toward year-end, and financial conditions are now less supportive of growth than they were earlier last year. Okay, before that, the market was getting slugged! And then he said those magic words, and we turned on a dime, as we realized that the Fed is going to be our pal and not our enemy. The irony here is that Powell himself caused many of those cross-currents he just mentioned and many of those conflicting signals when he came out at the beginning of October and he warned that he needed to raise interest rates four more times to cool down and overheat the economy. Maybe he needed to overshoot. Turns out he didn't need to tighten. He just needed to make the threat. And the markets did the work for him. Yet Powell's amateurish insistence that the economy is doing great in the face of a lot of contrary evidence almost single-handedly set off the hideous mini-bear market of December. The Fed was focused on the unemployment rate to the exclusion of everything else. This was a false tell. Even as uh, as companies continue to hire, there were so many pockets of weakness in retail, housing, autos, travel and leisure, banking, that turned into chasms of weakness when the Fed insisted it would keep tightening regardless. I spent a lot of time thinking about that terrible day before Christmas, where it really hit home to me that we were experiencing one of the worst, most compressed bear markets I've ever seen. When Powell made his first comments about overshooting on interest rates in early October, did you know the Dow Jones Industrial Average stood at 26,828? On the day before Christmas, not a creature was stirring except for a bear that was more than the average, taking it down to 21,792. Do you know what? That's 5,000 points worth of pain that we didn't need to experience. Eventually, perhaps because of the horrendous stock market, Powell changed his mind on everything, even unemployment. He'd been worried there wouldn't be enough slack in the labor market and we'd experience debilitating wage inflation. Now, though, he's singing a very different tune. There's more slack in the labor market because people are coming back in. If people weren't coming back in, then the unemployment rate would be 
substantially lower, but they are, or they're staying in. So labor force participation is rising in either case, and that tells us that there is more room to grow, and, and that certainly has implications for, for monetary policy. Translation? We were only looking at the big headline unemployment numbers without considering the labor participation rate. All the people who've dropped out of the job market since the Great Recession. And it turns out when you look at those numbers, we don't have anything close to a labor shortage in this country. Now he tells us. But hey, at least Powell's finally figured out that his words have power. So he's managed to slow everything down except for job growth. That's why the stock market was able to rally when he talked about cross currents and woes from overseas. So there's no reason to raise interest rates until we see meaningful signs of inflation, which we don't. But let's go back to the initial premise, though, because I'm trying to help us make money. I mean, that's what the show's about. Put it in context. Right now, people are looking at the breakdown in December, and they're extrapolating from there. I think that's a big mistake. Why? Well, I've got two solid examples. First, Home Depot, which reported a number that wasn't strong today and made people feel like the housing market is indeed falling off a cliff, as the recent data suggests. In reality, though, housing froze in the fourth quarter because of rate hike fears. And now it's unthawing because the Fed has changed its tune, which makes me bullish on Home Depot, not bearish. More on this one later. But the turn in the stock from hideous to merely ugly by the end of the day speaks loads about how at least some people are catching on to the right way of looking at things. The second example, all day today I heard about Caterpillar stock is a sell here because an analyst at UBS hit them with a double, what's known as a double downgrade. He went from recommending the stock to telling you to dump it. Why? Because this analyst believes that Cat's key end markets, construction, energy, transportation, are peaking. That's a big theory. I hear it a lot. And 2019 will be the high water mark of the business cycle. I got to tell you, I, I think that's just totally wrong. First, as the Fed taketh away, it can giveth. Caterpillar's end markets got crushed when Powell was being too hawkish. But they can bounce back now that he's being a dove. And the statements we heard today make me feel like the economy peaked in October, troughed in December, and it's not making a comeback. Isn't that why the stock market's going up for nine straight weeks? Isn't that what it's saying? I hear it. Remember, the market is a fabulous forecasting machine. When stocks started rolling over in October, it's singling an imminent stall out in the economy. By the same token, the recent strength signals the possibility of a resurgence this spring. Not only that, but it's pretty darn clear that while the Fed took away the punch bowl here in the United States, it was the trade war that spoiled the party and the rest of the world. China's the second largest economy on Earth. Does anyone honestly believe the global economy won't make a comeback if we can make a trade deal with the Chinese? I think Caterpillar is exactly, precisely the kind of stock that would scream higher on any kind of agreement with the PRC. At the end of the day, you need to keep your eyes on the future, not the past. Wall Street has a huge problem trying to extrapolate from past data that no longer is relevant because the facts have changed. In October, and I know it was endless, but I kept screaming. I kept screaming that the Fed better not raise rates into a weakening economy. I wanted Powell to recognize that inflation wasn't much of a problem and business was softer than he seemed to believe. I insisted that because of that muted inflation pressure, the Fed simply needed to be patient and watch and wait and see how the situation evolves rather than hitting us with a series of rate hikes. But the Fed insisted on tightening in December, and we got the exact decline in the economy that the stock market was forecasting during the fourth quarter. Today, though, well, listen to Pal. The committee has decided that with, uh, with our policy rate in the range of neutral, with muted inflation pressures and with some of the downside risks that we've talked about, this is a good time to be patient and watch and wait and see how the situation evolves. Genius. 
Suddenly, a lot of people are bearish because they're looking at this gift horse in the mouth. To me, I'm grateful and therefore bullish because it's almost never too late for the Fed to switch directions. Bottom line, we're no longer fighting the Fed, people. So don't be misled by data from the fourth quarter when Jerome Powell was still stock market enemy number one. That's why I think you should buy, not sell, the likes of Caterpillar and Home Depot. Hey, listen, when the Fed is your friend, these are exactly the kind of stocks that like to go higher. Hey, how about we go to Kelly in California? Kelly! Hi, Jim. Kelly. Thank you so much for taking my call. I love your show. Thank you. My question today is about Hale Celestial. I'm a strong believer in the organic foods trend, and I acquired Hale a couple years ago when it was at its peak. With all the recent SEC investigations and new management, do you feel Hale will rebound for a long-term hold or a sell? Well, look, I, I, I can see that you might want to own it down here at 17. Uh, my problem is I got no thesis about why you should buy it. And I always like to have some sort of catalyst or thesis. I don't have one when it comes to Hain. Hey, why don't we go to Jim in my home state of New Jersey? It's like talking to me. Jim! Hey, Jim Kramer. How are you today? I'm good, thank you. How about you? I'm doing good. I just had a hard day's work, and I'm driving home from Marmora, New Jersey, in my Mopar, and I love cars. Cars being said, Kimosabi, I have a question about Neo. A few months ago, you X'd out Neo. I called you about it. Sunday, if you saw 60 Minutes, they had a segment dedicated to Neo, and the CEO was on. Now, we all know electric cars, what they're about and all that, and they did the whole stop. You know, they built the super electric car first, and now they got an SUV that goes 0 to 60 and 4.5. But what's interesting about this company, and I want your blessing on it, whether or not it's more than just a car company, is that they're building infrastructure around the, uh, the car. In other words, they're building places you can plug in. They're yeah. building um, clubhouses for neo uh, consumers. They're also building where you would just roll into a makeshift garage, an Autotron comes to the bottom of the car, swaps out the battery, puts a new battery in. Look, Jim, they got game. I admit that they got game. The stock is a big since the 60 minutes, so I think it would be wrong uh, to actually just, like, kind of come in here. But you know what? I'm warming up to it, too. I wow, I'm throwing in the towel. I, I got to recommend more than just uh, than Alibaba. This is a good one. I wish I could say that. I wish our companies would catch up. All right, why don't we go to Mike in Florida. Mike, Mike, Mike. Hey, Jim. Thanks a lot for taking my call. Really appreciate it. Oh, sure. Uh, Hey, I'm calling about Yeti Holdings. So I was pretty fortunate to pick some up around $15. Well done. Um, Normally, I would take some money off the table, but this is a newly publicly traded stock, and I wanted to get your your input on where you think Mike, it's easy going. for me. This stock was undervalued when it came public. We've been pushing it really hard. We pushed it again. We've actually made two pushes on it. We also love the product. that makes it a lot easier. And I think Yeti's not done going up. I think it's a buy, even here. All right. I'm bullish. We're not, not longer fighting the Fed. That's what I've learned is a good time, not a bad one. Hey, I'll make money tonight. Tobacco may not be good for the soul, but could it be great for your wallet? I'm going off the charts to see if Altria, symbol Mo, could be worth owning here. Then the world's biggest smartphone conference is wrapping up, and I'm telling you how some of the tech t- tech's top companies plan to leverage 5G, and I got a surprise name that you want to get. It's one of the biggest names helping biotechs launch game-changing drugs. But can Charles River Labs give your portfolio a healthy boost in an uncertain market? 
May I suggest that you stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. In unprecedented times, access to the right information can help you make better informed investing decisions. That's why TD Ameritrade is committed to providing a range of relevant educational content, like timely articles, informative webcasts, and access to daily live market news, so you can stay on the path to becoming a smarter investor. Learn more at tdameritrade.com slash market hub. TD Ameritrade, where smart investors get smarter. Steve Miller something, I never grows old. My late last year, we had a horrible bearish moment. But pretty much everything sold off hard. Sellers couldn't wait to dump all of their stocks and then head for the hills, as I said at the top of the show. Then 2019 began. The Federal Reserve took a lot more sensible approach. Hey, maybe we shouldn't destroy the economy in order to stop inflation, given that we hardly have any inflation. And vast swaths of the market, well, they came roaring back. Everything economically sensitive suddenly became a lot more attractive. And these stocks run some more whenever we get good news on the China front. It's a double-barreled shotgun. Every turbocharged secular growth story rebounded like crazy. We've had a lot of winners so far this year, even though a lot of people have been left behind. But you know what got left behind in a way that, frankly, caught my eye seriously? And that's a whole bunch of these consumer packaged goods companies that we used to call the safety stocks. Of course, that was for Kraft Heinz. Now, I've told you repeatedly how many of these so-called defensive names don't offer you much in the way of defense anymore. That's why when Kraft Heinz imploded last week, uh, it, it wasn't worth buying. It's still not because pantry brands are becoming increasingly irrelevant in a world where young people want to eat food that's fresh and natural. Hey, Coca-Cola got crushed a week and a half ago because it turns out the carbonated sugar water is a little less of a necessity than we previously thought. Conagra and Campbell's soup are total dogs for the same reason. They're painful to even look at. Now, of course, there are plenty of safety stocks that have managed to get traction here. PepsiCo, Procter & Gamble, through 100. How about C. Smucker today? Nice. Broadly speaking, though, the consumer staples have been very, very hit or miss. And when they miss, they miss way too big for this guy. But at least one of these stocks may be ready to roar. And uh, arguably, it's the most distasteful of the bunch. Certainly the worst smelling. I'm talking about Altria. Mo for all you home gamers, the domestic tobacco company that you know as Marlboro, along with a host of other brands like Virginia Slims and Parliaments, not to mention some cigars and chewing tobacco. And we get so many calls in this in the lighting round, I always punt because I don't want to talk about these stocks. But you know what? Uh, it, it is worth it. This is a company that in December spent $13 billion to pick up a 35% stake in Juul, J-U-U-L. That's the electronic cigarette maker that dominates the e-cig business. Something like 75% market share, growing very fast. Altria had been trying to get a piece of this business for over a year. Then they finally got their chance when Juul ran afoul of the regulators. Hey, it turns out, get this, turns out that selling candy-flavored nicotine sticks might make them a little too attractive to children. That was a smart move, but it happened in the dark days of December, and the stock market didn't seem to care. 
Altria is even more into marijuana. With its 45% stake, you can quote us. Now, the one you guys asked me about constantly, one of the major Canadian cannabis places. Although the $1.8 billion investment in Kronos isn't much of a needle mover when you think that Altria is a $97 billion company. At least not yet. Then the new year started and the rest of the market started getting traction. But for most of January, Altria's stock drifted lower. It wasn't until a month ago that it showed some signs of life. But now it's finally bouncing, in part thanks to a very strong quarter. So tonight we're going to go off the charts in the taboo land that is tobacco. And we're going to do it with the help of Tim Collins. He's a brain technician and he's my colleague at RealMoney.com, where I blog every day to get a better read on where Altria might be headed. He's optimistic. All right, take a look at this weekly chart. This shows Altria's performance relative to Philip Morris, PM, okay, which was spun off by Altria years ago to handle their foreign business, going back to 2013. For years, Altria left Philip Morris International in the dust. But then, starting in 2015, that pattern of outperformance shifted to a pattern of consolidation. In fact, that pattern has become very well defined over the past four years. Remember, Leonardo Fibonacci, the medieval mathematician who discovers super important series of ratios that repeat themselves over and over in nature. Think of patterns of snail shells and growth of pine cones. also, for some reason, seem to define important levels in the stock market. I don't know why stocks should have anything in common with snail shells, but experience, they do. Now, when Collins looks at what Altria's big period of outperformance in 2013-2014, then runs it through the prism of the Fibonacci ratios, you get a picture like this one. Each of the horizontal lines represents a crucial level where an instrument is likely to rebound. So for the first couple of years after the rally, Altria outperformed relative to Mount Philip Morris. Okay? Then... It pulled back until it hit the 38.2% retracement. All right, that's the first level. And then it held uh, as a floor of support. After that, we saw a big washout in 2017, down to the 61.8% retracement level. That's where Altria started outperforming PM again. Last year, it tested the 50% retracement level, uh, and it went back into outperformance mode. Then it did the same thing at the 38.2% level. So you can see all these different levels and what they've done. Most recently, Collins points out that they tested the 50% retracement level again last month. And based on the pattern we've seen over and over here, he thinks that Altria could be poised to start outperforming Philip Morris again. That could be huge, as Altria is currently up just 4% for the year, while Philip Morris has already gained 30% over the same period. That's pretty incredible. Now, again, the, this chart is measuring a relationship between two stocks, Altria and versus Philip Morris. Altria can outperform and still go lower if PM is really sticking up the joint. However, based on this chart, Collins is confident that Altria would be the best way to play the Marlboro Man again. And thanks to Altria's daily chart, he likes what he sees in the near future. Collins notes at the end of 2018 and beginning of 2019 was downright ugly. However, the stock's recent bounce has created something beautiful from that ugliness. It's an inverse head and shoulders pattern. This is the upside-down head between two shoulders formation. It's one of the most bullish, if not the most bullish, pattern in the entire chart book. We start with the left shoulder, which is a, a showing period of consolidation, followed by a breakdown to a new low. Then Altria makes a lower uh, low, uh, lower low, the head, and then starts to bounce, which is the shoulder. Then after the rebound, we get another period where the stock trades sideways, the right shoulder. The neckline is the level where the left shoulder connects with the right one. Put them all together, and you've got your inverse head and shoulders pattern. So consolidation, bottom, then consolidation, and then it's supposed to go up. The great thing about this pattern is that it gives you a clear upside target. You just measure the distance from the head at 43.50 to the neckline, that's $6.50 here, and it tells you how far the stock can rally. Given that Altria's neckline is at 50, Collins believes it could go to 56.50.
about 8.5% higher from where it's currently traded. As long as the stock holds above 48 and preferably above 50, then Collins says this pattern is still in play. What else? How about Altria's short-term 21-day moving average? It's crossing above its medium-term 50-day moving average. That's an absolute classic bullish crossover that often signals there's more upside ahead. These are all just well-known patterns. Meanwhile, Collins points out that the relative strength index, or RSI, important momentum indicator, is now making new highs. Again, terrific news. This has created what's known as a bullish divergence between the RSI RSI and the action now tree itself. Usually these situations suggest that the stock in question is ready to roar. Guys, this is a picture-perfect chart. Okay? Here's the bottom line. The charts as interpreted by Tim Collins suggest that Altria has finally found some traction. Not only does Collins see Altria going to 56.50, he thinks it will get there before your taxes are due. And hey, don't forget, Altria's paying you to wait. It's got a beautiful and safe 6% dividend yield. Usual caveat, I personally don't recommend tobacco stocks anymore, but in this one segment each week, I rely on the judgment of others. And if I didn't know what business Altria was in, if I only cared about the chart and not about all the people who've been killed by its products, then I've been telling you to buy it too. As it is, you can make up your own mind. Stay with Kramer. Three weeks ago, we ran a couple of pieces about 5G. The next generation wireless technology that's going to revolutionize what you can do with your phone. I think this is going to be one of the biggest stories of the next few years. As companies around the world spend fortunes to build out their 5G networks, just like we saw with the 4G build-out earlier this decade and the 3G build-out roughly a dozen years ago. We're basically constructing a whole new cellular network on top of the one we already have, and that requires enormous amounts of tech hardware again. 5G is exactly the kind of powerful long-term theme that we're always on the hunt for on Mad Money. But this one has a couple of additional wrinkles. As I told you before, the 5G rollout is inseparable from President Trump's trade war with China. Trump stock, Trump stock. Everyone acts like this dispute is about tariffs and trade deficits, but I think it's really all about technology. Simply, the White House wants Chinese companies to stop stealing American intellectual property. More importantly, they don't want the Chinese companies like ZTE or Huawei supplying the hardware for 5G networks all over the globe. Remember, the People's Republic of China is an authoritarian state with pretensions to communism. They literally have a law that requires their companies to assist the government with espionage. And we know the Chinese equivalent of the CIA has been caught sponsoring hackers who steal data from American businesses. They hacked Marriott, for heaven's sake. I, I could understand if China's trying to steal the secrets from a defense contractor like Lockheed, uh, Martin, or Marietta, uh, Raytheon. I, I, I wouldn't like it. But that's what intelligence agencies are for, I guess. But stealing customer data from hotel chains? Especially the one I stay at? Well, that's just creepy. The thing is, China makes the best and the cheapest telco equipment for 5G networks, and that's a real problem. This CNBC podcast is brought to you by TD Ameritrade. Investing isn't one size fits all. Every investor has a unique style. That's why TD Ameritrade offers two different mobile apps. There's TD Ameritrade Mobile, which lets you manage your portfolio with streamlined simplicity. Or Thinkorswim Mobile, which gives you tools you need for more advanced trades and in-depth analysis. Visit tdameritrade.com apps to find the one that's right for you. Once again, that's tdameritrade.com apps. There are four major players in this space, two Chinese, ZTE and Huawei, and two Scandinavian, Ericsson and, from Sweden and Nokia from Finland. For years, Ericsson and Nokia have been steamrolled by their Chinese competitors that just don't do as good a job, they're not as good engineers. 
But now that President Trump is cracking down on the PRC's shady trade practices, we're learning all kinds of unflattering things about Huawei and ZTE. That's why I recommended Ericsson and Nokia, because I think they'll be able to take market share as the 5G rollout really gets rolling. Their tech may be inferior. They may even cost more money. But you don't need to worry about Finland or Sweden using their products as a backdoor into your cellular network. At the same time, I also recommend a bunch of semiconductor companies that have substantial 5G exposure, uh, either because they make chips for the infrastructure or because their chips enable your phone to harness that infrastructure. There you got to think about Skyworks, uh, Qualcomm, unfortunately, it's got that Apple overhang, so it's trapped, Broadcom, Intel, and especially Xilinx. Since then, most of these stocks have drifted higher, including a 6% gain by Intel and a 7% gain by Xilinx. Yes, of course, I named my new puppy after Xilinx. Now, it hasn't even been three full weeks since we ran those segments. Already, we've gotten some major new developments here. First off, uh, maybe President Trump is a major, uh, a major mad money fan. I'm not sure. Because less than 24 hours after our 5G show, we started hearing chatter that Trump was thinking about signing an executive order that would ban Chinese telco equipment in the United States. Perhaps as soon as the following week. Uh, so far, it hasn't happened. But... When Vice President Pence went to the Munich Security Conference two weeks ago, he essentially demanded that Europe ban Chinese technology from global communications networks. That said, he got a frosty response. Then just last week, the president tweeted about the need for U.S. companies to step up their efforts in 5G or risk being left behind. Over the next few months, you're going to want to watch the major wireless carriers, especially the government-owned ones, because they're about to make some major sourcing decisions. For example, yesterday, Nokia signed a deal with Saudi Telecom to deploy a 5G network using their end-to-end solutions. They expect to finish the rollout by the end of 2020. In theory, Europe should be fertile ground from Ericsson, from Ericsson and Nokia. After all, I mean, they're European. But I can see some of these countries going with Chinese suppliers purely to spite President Trump. Now, this week, we're hearing even more about 5G at the MWC conference in Barcelona. That was formerly known as the Mobile World Congress. But like the SAT, it got so big, they decided to change the name of the acronym. And this event has made one thing crystal clear. We left out a major player when we introduced you to 5G a few weeks ago. Remember, we're going to keep revisiting this theme. But I'm talking about maybe one that I should have mentioned first. And that one is Cisco, the world leader in the networking equipment and a stock that I like so much. We own it from our charitable trust, which you can follow along by joining the ActionAwardsPlus.com club. This stock has been on fire lately, up more than 18% for the year, fueled in part by a terrific quarter that the company reported the week before last. We've talked a lot about the transformation Cisco spirited by CEO Chuck Robbins, with the company reinventing itself by embracing more software while doubling down on the Internet of Things and cybersecurity, where they're a huge player now. But they've also got a lot of exposure to 5G via faster switches and software-defined wide-area networks. And I haven't talked about it nearly as much as I should. Now, by the way, you know, just beat me to the punch here. Publishing a piece this morning, even though I thought to do this piece last night, uh, saying why Cisco's CEO is betting the house on 5G, which included a couple of great quotes from Robbins and about how he's confident he can beat the Chinese competition, something he said to me when I interviewed him not that long ago and squawk on the street. In December, Cisco snapped up a little semiconductor company called Luxterra for $660 million in order to use Luxterra's faster chips across their whole networking portfolio. Basically, the company's very focused on being able to offer its customers the best hardware for the backbone of the Internet, including 5G networks and everything else they connected to. One of the most revealing things in Cisco's blowout quarter was their public sector business. It was up an astounding 18%. I've been watching that line for a long time. That's really incredible. Uh, it, remember, in the rest of the world, the 5G build-out is being orchestrated by governments. 
and this business is on fire, the public networks. Plus, at MWC Barcelona this week, Cisco has been showcasing its 5G capabilities in particular. They've announced a slew of 5G deals with the likes of Verizon, SoftBank, and Airtel, among others. Oh, and get this. CEO Chuck Robbins will be delivering the keynote speech tomorrow at the conference. You may want to find yourself a transcript after it happens. And look, this whole story is just getting started. Last night, J.P. Morgan published a really good summary of what's happening at the conference, where they noted that the first half of this year is really more of a preparatory phase. phase. Small! with the big spending on the 5G build-out starting in the second half of the year. So you're not late, people. Perhaps the best evidence that this is going to be a gigantic story came from Deutsche Bank this morning, which raised the price target on Intel, precisely because Intel's poised to become a major player in, yes, the 5G markets, thanks to its acquisition of Altera a few few years ago. Remember, Altera's major uh, uh, competitor is Xilinx, so you can see how that's happening. The bottom line, when you find an incredible long-term theme relatively early in its life cycle, you you can really rack up some terrific gains, simply by being patient and letting the news roll in. And that's one reason I love Cisco and think it's a fabulous way to play the 5G build-out. Meanwhile, the stock is cheap, sells for just 16 times earnings, it supports a juicy 2.7% yield, so they're paying you to wait. Not that you have have had to wait very much with this particular thoroughbred. Sherry in Florida, Sherry. Hi, Jim. I'm a buy-and-hold investor, and I especially like high-dividend stocks. Uh, Several months ago, I bought CenturyLink, and it has tanked. Not yeah. to mention, they cut the dividend. Would you, my esteemed stock guru, give me your take on what's going on and if you think my usual method will will work? Uh, I think that these guys uh, are, um, when I read through the transcript, it's very clear that they're trying to grow again. But I've got to tell you, I don't know if they can. And I see a lot of the others in that industry, which is the knockoff telco industry, I call it, that are struggling. So I'm going to have to say I would not own that stock. Let's go to David in New York. David. Yes, Jim. Hi. How are you? All right, David. How are you? I'm excellent. I enjoy your show, and I have to say I find it very entertaining and informative. Thank you. And I really appreciate you taking my uh, question tonight. Thank you. What's going on? Well, I'm interested in your thoughts on BT, British Telecom, because with the price of the British pound and the uncertainty about Brexit, along with the new uh, CEO, Jansen, who took over the, uh, the helm this uh, month. Right. I'd like to know if you think that BT is a keeper for the long no, term. No, as a matter of fact, as- no. I like Verizon more, and I like ATT more. Why do I like those more? Because they're easier to understand, and because I know ATT's doing just okay, but Verizon's doing very, very well, but they're both doing better than BT. All right. Cisco, Cisco, that's right, is a fabulous way to play the 5G build-out as it rolls out all over the world over the next few years. And it's paying you to wait. Now, there's much more mad money ahead. Uh, Charles in Charge was a hit TV show. But should you also put it in charge of your portfolio? I'm talking to the CEO of Charles River Labs to see if it can be worth owning here. That Home Depot was taking a hit today. Is the stock in need of a remodel, or is it just a momentary lapse? I bet you know which way I'm coming down. Here's my take. The way it calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Yesterday we learned that Danaher. Kramer Faith, shelling out $21 billion to buy General Electric's biopharma division, which makes all sorts of tools and uh, instruments for the life science industry. Basically an arms dealer to the biotech and pharma space. So if GE's biopharma biz was worth a lot, 
certainly a lot more than people thought. What else might we be undervaluing here? How about Charles River Labs, CRL? This is an old-time Kramer fake. Stock has given us a 74% gain since we last spoke to the CEO a little over two years ago. Charles River is a contract resource organization that provides universities and biopharma companies with the tools they need to discover new drugs and conduct clinical trials, right down to the purpose-bred uh, lab rats used in safety studies. We know the company's doing well here as they just reported a fantastic quarter. Great guidance earlier this month. We also learned that they're buying a, 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 a company called uh, Cytox Lab. That's another contract research organization. They're, that's for uh, $510 million. In short, there's a lot going well for these guys. And I think the fact that the stock pulled back more than $4 today is a gift. I'd be a buyer in a week. Just do not take it from me, though. Let's go to Jim Foster. He's the chairman and CEO of Charles River Laboratories International. Hear more about how the company's doing. Where it's headed. Mr. Foster, welcome back to Mad Money. Great to be here, Jim. Well, first, Jim, it's a pretty great time, I think, to do what you're doing, both because of the biotech world, but also the FDA, which is approving a lot more drugs than they used to. Exactly. We've got uh, the FDA trying to uh, get drugs to market as quickly as possible. Last year was an all-time high at 59 drugs. We worked on 85% of those drugs, so we were really thrilled to be able to contribute uh, so significantly, lots of those drugs that the FDA got to market were rare, rare uh, to, to treat rare diseases, a lot of large molecules, and a lot of uh, desire to get things to market that normally would get there much more slowly. Well, you know, this, this morning, uh, Ken Frazier, who's really one of the uh, deacons of, 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 uh, of drug work in this country, really fabulous. He was up on this on Senate. And this, this Senate is kind of grilling all these drug manufacturers. He says, we make money at Merck by inventing new drugs that didn't exist before. It's those people that contributed to the villainizing of an industry when the public can't distinguish those people from the research-based companies. What you do, if you did not do it, would any drugs, you did 85% of the drugs, wouldn't most drugs be too expensive for any company to develop? Well, uh, I don't want to overstate our importance. I mean, we're, we're helping for sure to get drugs to market faster and do it in a much less uh, expensive fashion. And if you think of the whole plethora of biotech companies who have no internal capabilities to develop the drugs once they discover it, we work for most of those companies. And yeah, they would have trouble getting drugs to market, but for us. Big Pharma had all the internal capabilities and is now have been outsourcing a lot of the work because they can focus their efforts um, in other places. You know, people love to villainize the drug companies because uh, of their prices. Uh, obviously, for drugs for unmet needs, it's critically important uh, to get these drugs to market and figure out a way to pay for them. That's very different than generic drugs or uh, drugs for which there are uh, many drugs for, for a single indication. So I think the FDA is doing great work, and biotech, of course, has been the discovery engine for Big Pharma, and we're enjoying helping all of them uh, get their drugs to market. Jim, which is better, having a whole bunch of biotech companies, say, in immunotherapy on their own, or when they're bought by Big Pharma? Hardly a week goes by that we don't see an acquisition. Is it better that they're standalone than it is when they're consumed by a, a GlaxoSmithKline or a Lilly? Well, I think it's better that they're standalone for a while, Jim. They're very, you have a small number of R&D people very focused on trying to solve a single problem. Um, without a lot of uh, corporate uh, oversight and, and complexity. And so uh, the biotech companies have be become the discovery engines because they're able to do this much more quickly uh, and uh, either find molecules or not 
uh, for certain diseases. And then when they reach uh, certain points in the life cycle, usually a proof of concept, when, you, when it looks like the drug is working, uh, a lot of them are getting bought, a lot of them are merging, uh, a lot of them are um, uh, working with Big Pharma to distribute their drugs uh, overseas. And so, yeah, I think the... I think given the fact that more drugs were uh, got to market this year is really an indication and evidence of the fact that this biotech-pharma relationship is beneficial uh, for the drug industry and certainly for patients as we go forward. All right, Jim, one of the things that I think is notable is most of the companies I deal with are trying to get out of China. They're worried about China. You just had a huge, huge year in China. Is that because the Chinese version of the FDA uh, knows uh, they got a billion people, and they got to try to prove as much as they can uh, it, it faster even than the United States. Yeah, well, Ch- China is obviously a huge market from a population point of view. You have an, an, an intense investment by the Chinese government in the life sciences, I think about $2 trillion. There are all sorts of concerns about, uh, about IP that um, it's not particularly useful for me to comment on, but... There's a lot of wonderful research going on and investment in big pharma and biotech. And, of course, you've got small cities uh, with 5 million people, and the work continues to be pushed out further from the major cities there. So we're in that marketplace providing research models uh, and ancillary services. And to have uh, very high-quality research models, in other words, laboratory mice and rats, to do this research... Uh, which has not been available in China uh, before we got there, is really beneficial uh, for the research uh, marketplace. So our our business has been growing at double digits there. We're thrilled to be in the market. We just built a new facility in Shanghai and are looking at a third and fourth facility in the west and the southern part of China. And uh, so far, we've really enjoyed uh, doing business in China. We we have a, a very good team there. And we found that um, the government has been uh, helpful and, and reasonable in, in terms of our expansion program. So right, well, we intend to continue to expand all of our uh, businesses in China eventually. Well, that's a great market for you. But the world is a great market, including that acquisition you just did. We can get to talk about That's Jim Foster. He's the chairman CEO of Charles River Labs. I've, I've been behind this for 72%. I'm still behind it. Man, money's back into the break. It is time! It's time for the lightning episode! And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy! It's time for the lightning round because we might start with Michael in front of Michael. Thanks, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Is uh is cannabis uh, Aurora cannabis a buy at its current level? We're gonna say no to that. We like we like canopy growth. That's our fave. Up a couple bucks today. Be careful, but that's the one to own. Jonathan Farnan, Jonathan! Hey! When do you sleep, brother? Yo, yo, man, what you got there for me? Uh, I like what they do and I love what they're planning on. Talk to me about ABAV. Well, you know what? I don't sleep, and that's why, because of AVAV. No, it's a drone company. I, I like the drone. Here's the problem. The stock has been football, is what we call it, meaning it just goes up and down, up and down on what the shorts are saying. Is it a Wayfair? I don't know. Let's have the CEO back on. Until then, I'm not quite sure. Let's go to Tyler in Tennessee. Tyler! Hey, Jim. Booyah. Booyah. Tyler from Nashville, Tennessee. 
Nice. Uh, so I'm a new listener, I'm new into investing. Um, my father-in-law got, has got us started with several winners, including the Chinese Amazon, Alibaba. Um, and he's also made a pick, which I bought into the Chinese Netflix IQ. I need to know what my IQ we got is. The whole chi- you got the whole Chinese fang going there. Okay, here's the problem. I like Alibaba. I don't want to double down on China. We just had a very big run. China had a 5% move on uh, coming in on Monday. So we're not going to buy, you know, I already went, went over to another Chinese stock that uh, I'm already aggressive on. Let's just hold off for the uh, Chinese Netflix. Let's be a little careful. Hey, why don't we go to Russell in Massachusetts? Russell! Booyah, Jim. Booyah. Thank you so much for all you do for us. Sure trying. Uh, my stock is Kinder Morgan. Can you believe that... that Rich Kennedy bought more stock. I mean, he just bought more stock. I I mean, the guy, like, you know, uncle, uncle. I mean, the guy is not stopping. He's going to buy every share. That's why about a point ago, I said, okay, I can't fight him anymore. I like Enterprise a little bit better, but KMI, I'm not fighting the guy. Wow. Hey, let's go to Larry in New York. Larry. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I'm good. How about you, Larry? I'm great. So, Dropbox. Great third quarter earnings. You liked it. Yes. Uh, fourth quarter report was good. Uh, bought hello sign. Um, made all the right moves. Leader, leader in the in the space. And the street hates the forty five percent off the high. What's going on? Well, you know, they, people didn't like the revenue guidance. I got to tell you, I thought that that was too savage. Uh, I think that the stock's going to come back. It's a great company. I'm not backing away from Dropbox one bit. And that, ladies and gentlemen, of the lightning round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Take control of your financial future with the new madmoney.cnbc.com. Kramer's exclusive CEO interviews, full episodes, analysis, even your own soundboard. Plus special access to Mad Money 101 with rules and techniques to break down the market for all investors. The red flag that makes me drop a stock immediately is... It's everything you need right when you need it. The new madmoney.cnbc.com. Which is more important, the announcement of a $15 billion buyback or a slight earnings miss? What deserves more emphasis, a 30% dividend boost or less than 1% disappointment in same-store sales? What do you care more about, honestly, a stepped-up opportunistic buyback in the fourth quarter or a shading down of the full-year earnings guidance? The answer? It depends. If we're talking about the average retailer in America, I'd say it is time to sell, sell, sell. A miss is a miss. But we're not talking about the average retailer. We're talking about the numbers we got this morning from Home Depot. And Home Depot is arguably the best-run retailer in the country, perhaps with the possible exception of Costco. Today, investors decided that the negatives outweighed the positives, and the stock got hit, falling seven points from <laughs> one point for managing to rally back to fall a buck sixty-eight. As I said on Squawk on the Street this morning, the sell-off was a huge mistake. There's no way Home Depot should stay down, even after these slight letdown versus the expectations. Why does Home Depot get the benefit of the doubt, at least for me? First of all, a gigantic buyback and a huge dividend boost are pretty incredible signs of confidence to me. You don't increase your payout by 30% if you're worried business is going to get worse. And you certainly don't add $15 billion to your repurchase authorization. Second, why did Home Depot miss in the first place? The company said the weather. And in this case, I believe them. 
As CEO Craig Minear explained on a conference call, quote, it was cold, it was snowy, and perhaps worst of all, it was wet. Wet weather delays projects, and this is, and this is evident in our sales performance in the quarter, end quote. Uh, then Minear tells us that excluding the weather, quote, our business performed in line with our expectations, end quote. Later on the call, management got very granular, giving you the comparables for the areas that weren't impaired by the cold weather. And sure enough, those numbers were indeed terrific. I pointed all of this out because on a day when the broader housing numbers showed some astounding weakness, sales of existing homes down 8.5% versus last year, there's going to be some understandable trepidation and a tendency to say that forget Home Depot. This one's not coming back anytime soon. I think that's dead wrong. Do you honestly believe that this great company, and it is a great company with all of its knowledge about the housing market and the gross domestic product, would step up its dividend and buy back so dramatically if they're really worried about these short-term fluctuations? Sometimes, you know, you got to fall back on experience. I've been covering Home Depot ever since it opened its first store in New York decades ago. I know that the company is a cash machine. And it's a cash machine for you, the shareholder. In fiscal 2018, I affectionately called the despot. Uh, a company called The Despot generated a $13 billion, $13 billion gain in cash, okay, uh, from, from its business. And get this, with, with, with $2.2 billion raised from debt issuance and cash on hand, here's what they did with the money. They put $2.4 billion in themselves, okay, to make the place better. Remember, they don't add a lot of stores. They paid out $4.7 billion in dividends, and they spent $10 billion on buybacks. Just in the fourth quarter alone, the company repurchased $4.5 billion worth of shares. Wall Street was only looking for a $4 billion purchase. Why not? Home Depot stock peaked at 215 in September, fell to the 150s December lows. Even with the shares back up to 188, management clearly believes that the decline here is out of proportion with how well the business is doing. I agree with management. The core problem here comes down to expectations. Think of the stock market as a mildly dysfunctional family. Home Depot is like a straight-A student that got a B-plus in the latest quarter. And when you're on the honor roll, well, Wall Street punishes you for anything less than perfection. So now investors are withholding their affection until the despot gets better grades. My view. Look, periodically you get this kind of alleged disappointment from these guys, only to find out that they told the truth the whole way about the weather. And they hit it out of the park in the next quarter. Keep in mind, Home Depot is about to head into gardening season, which is the equivalent of Christmas for the business. Plus, they finally lapped the tough comparisons caused by the reconstruction after the hurricanes in the uh, fall of the previous year. Tomorrow, I expect some downgrades from the Sunshine Soldiers and the Summer Patriots among the analysts. I think that's when you pounce. I don't know how long this opportunity will last. I do know that Home Depot is going to use any weakness to buy its own stock back. You know what? That's good enough for me. Stick with Craig. remiss if I didn't mention Etsy. I mean, this is a company that reported a fantastic number that on the conference call actually told you at the very beginning that the year started a little bit soft, and yet the stock still powered higher. Why? Because this is a secular trend. In other words, a trend that doesn't really have to worry that much about the economy, which is a craft store that's going to beat Amazon. Like I said, there's always more market summer. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Man Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.